Welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century. Today, we have an especially relevant and I think timeless subject about civil rights, race, Plessy versus Ferguson, and the Supreme Court. The term separate but equal is one of the most infamous lines in American history. At the end of the 1800s, a near unanimous court defended segregation as long as blacks and whites theoretically had equal treatment. It would take more than half a century to undo this decision in Plessy versus Ferguson. Yet, Supreme Court cases don't happen in a vacuum. Clerks and lawyers spend years building up precedent. For this episode, we sit down with former judge and podcaster Craig Estelbaum to discuss the road to Plessy. How were landmark civil rights overturned and undermined by the end of the century? How can this help us understand our modern legal system? Let's find out. Hi, everyone. Glad that you could join us today for a conversation with Craig Eslenbaum about the Supreme Court race and civil rights at the end of the 1800s. We're calling this the road to Plessy or Plessy versus Ferguson. Eslenbaum was a judge on the 130th District Court of Texas from 2001 through December 2020. He's been an adjunct professor of law at South Texas College of Law since 2004. He regularly speaks before bar associations and law school programs, and his work has been published in law journals at St. Mary's Law School, South Texas College of Law, and elsewhere. He also co-hosts the podcast Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. Thanks for joining, Craig. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited for this episode um, and to talk about both Supreme Court history, which I think is always relevant as long as our Constitution still exists. Uh, but also to talk about the issues um, specifically to do with what was one of the earlier civil rights movements um, and the fight back and forth for those rights. Um, So thinking about, uh, I'm going to repeat that. I've been thinking about this episode as a kind of path to some of the Jim Crow segregation that we know about. And, the doctrine of separate but equal. The civil rights movement seemed so hopeful at the end of the Civil War and ended so disastrously by the turn of the century. We're going to start with Reconstruction, with the end of the Civil War, and work our way to that famous doctrine of separate but equal and Plessy versus Ferguson. So first of all, Craig, can you explain a little bit about what the Reconstruction Amendments were, what were the cornerstones of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment at the end of the 1860s? Well, of course, the Reconstruction era is the period after the Civil War from 1865 to the election of 1876, uh, which is generally described as the Reconstruction period. And after, uh, before the Civil War, uh, there was a clear line distinguishing between the states and the federal government, and the federal government was one of very limited power. But the radical Republicans or the Republicans of the time after the Civil War, after Appomattox, realized that they had to make some changes in the Constitution uh, to reflect the new reality after the Emancipation Proclamation and the, and the, and the uh, bringing together again the full reu- uh, union after the, de- the demise of the Confederacy. So the first of the three Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution was the 13th Amendment, which passed in 1865, immediately after Appomattox and before the 11 uh, rebelling states were returned to the Union. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, and gave Congress the authority to enforce uh, that amendment. And so this is the amendment that eliminated Uh, slavery as a matter of constitutional law, and it happened immediately after uh, the Civil War ended in the spring of 1865. And if we're going for a pop culture history for a moment, correct me if I'm wrong, but for any movie fans, that's the amendment in the movie Lincoln, right? 
Correct. Okay. Yeah. So that's like at the very end of the Civil War, if you're imagining a Daniel Day Lewis Lincoln figure. Um, right. I think Lincoln had already been assassinated by the time the 13th Amendment passed. I don't have the, the actual months involved, but Lincoln was assassinated, I believe, in April of 65. Okay. And this amendment passed, you know, Appomattox, I believe, was right at that time as well in the spring of 65. And then the amendment passed shortly thereafter before there was even any return of the rebelling states into the Union. So the, the 13th Amendment was not voted on by the 11 states in the Confederacy. And so, you know, I was just looking at the the dates again. Um, and so it's interesting because so much happens. I mean, the Civil War is very interesting, but so much happens in the war at the very end of the war. But the next two amendments that we're talking about don't get passed, don't get ratified until a few years later. So why is that? What are these amendments, the 14th and 15th Amendment? And why do they take more time to ratify? Well, in 1865, after the 13th Amendment, Congress passed what became known as the Civil Rights Act of 1866 that guaranteed citizenship without regard to race, color, or previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude. But that amendment was vetoed by President Andrew Johnson, who was Abraham Lincoln's vice president. And uh, Johnson uh, vetoed uh, because he objected to the, uh, the act conferring citizenship on freedmen at the time when 11 of the 36 states were not participating in the vote. And he also felt that the act discriminated in favor of African-Americans against white citizens. That veto was overridden by Congress. It was the first time in American history that a veto had been overridden by Congress. But uh, Congress was worried that Johnson had a point in terms of enforceability. So they went to work on what later became the 14th Amendment that was ultimately passed in 1868. And this is the amendment that guarantees all citizens uh, due process of law, equal protection of the law, and a guarantee against infringement on their privileges and immunities. Those were the three main parts of Section 1 of that amendment. That's the long, This is the longest of the three amendments in the Reconstruction era. Sections 2, 3, and 4 dealt with some war-related measures like Confederate debt, repayment of uh, union debt, and uh, issues related to who could serve as a representative of a, of a rebelling state. And then Section 5 of that amendment uh, gave Congress enforcement power to pass laws enforcing the uh, 14th Amendment. And that, that's really so I mean, I keep saying it's interesting, but it really is fascinating because, you know, I think a lot of um, scholarship about the Supreme Court, about law and precedent um, and the Constitution talks about intent. And it sounds like the um, intent of the of Congress, of people ratifying the 14th Amendment was that they really wanted to make sure this was enforceable, that they really wanted something that was sweeping. Would you say that's accurate? I think that's accurate. Of course, the Fifth Amendment includes both equal protection and due process of law as well. But prior to the Civil War, those were considered to be rights only again, only uh, that that related to the federal government. In other words, state governments had their own thing and the two were considered to be two separate spheres of, of authority. And it was definitely uh, the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to bring the previously enslaved African-American population into uh, citizenship and all of the rights and privileges and immunities of citizenship uh, that had previously been enjoyed only by, by white, uh, by white Americans. And OK, so thank you for clarifying that. And so the, the 15th Amendment Pretty simple compared to the 14th, but what does the 15th Amendment lay out? Um, and I'm also just curious why that also took longer to pass, why it wasn't just in, I guess, concert with uh, the 14th. The 15th Amendment passed in 1870, and it says simply that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. There were some issues in the election of 1868. Uh, regarding interference with the right to vote. And um, and this was an amendment that was designed to address that. But you still had a complicating factor when you're talking about rights, the right to vote, because the right to vote is typically defined by the states. And I think, I'm pretty sure in, in as late as 1870, there were still no states that were giving a broad right to vote to, to women. 
So you still had the idea that the right to vote was not something that was universal as opposed to, say, the right to due process of law. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and I assume as as, opposed, or as universal for citizens. Um, so thinking about these amendments as like almost the one of the high points of Reconstruction, right? That these are, I mean, we'd agree objectively good standards, good amendments um, to include. So how do these get revised, um, undermined or changed by the Supreme Court in later years? Well, the first of the three cases that we're going to talk about in some detail, there were many other cases that followed the same pattern, but there's, I think, a step, a stair step of three cases that really uh, work to undermine, principally undermine the Reconstruction era amendments. And the first of the three is or, or referred to as the slaughterhouse cases that were decided by the Supreme Court in 1873, five years after the 14th Amendment passed. And that's a case involving that had nothing to do with race whatsoever. That was a case involving a Louisiana law that incorporated a company called the Crescent City Livestock Landing and Slaughterhouse Company into a state-controlled monopoly that uh, and that required all butchering of animals in New Orleans to be done at that facility. So it essentially was a law creating a state-controlled monopoly, privately owned state-regulated monopoly, I might say. And so the, the slaughterhouse cases uh, came about, uh, uh, this, the result of the law was that all slaughterhouse operations were centralized to this one facility in New Orleans by law. So you had other entities that had either had their own slaughterhouses on site or other entities that had formed trade associations that had slaughterhouses. Now they couldn't use those facilities to slaughter animals. They had to go to the central monopoly, the Crescent City uh, facility and incur that travel expense and time and also the fees associated with using someone else's slaughterhouse facilities. So they brought a challenge and they brought some challenges immediately in state court, but those all lost because it was determined under state law that that was a reasonable exercise of the state police power for health, safety and so forth. But uh, John Campbell, a former United States Supreme Court justice who resigned his seat during the Civil War when Louisiana seceded from the Union, brought a lawsuit against the state and claimed that the, the, the statute that created the monopoly violated the 14th Amendment privileges and immunities uh, clause. And the idea was that it is a privilege and immunity for an individual to be able to labor freely in an honest avocation. And so that case, because now you've raised this 14th Amendment question, a question of federal law after the, the after the the, uh, the plaintiffs lost at the Louisiana Supreme Court, had an avenue to get to the United States Supreme Court. So, so far, this doesn't have anything to do, as as far as I can tell, with race. How does this connect to the theme of um, of voter protection of civil rights? You know, where does this all come in? Well, you had a conflict in the on the Republican side. Uh, between a general belief that all Americans had certain fundamental rights that should be secured against infringement, but the states were primarily responsible for ensuring those rights. So there's that conflict, again, that tension between federal and state uh, power and authority. And I'm the book. Go, 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 ahead. go ahead. OK, um, so I'm just curious um, because, you know, I think about the Republicans and the uh, radical Republicans of the time as kind of being big business, but also having some interest in big government. Um, were there any politicians that wanted to expand the scope of government? Were the Democrats also in a bind here? Well, the Democrats uh, in that period of time had re regained control of the state government, the arms of state government. By 1868, 1870, you started to see uh, the uh, for example, there were really by 1870, not, not hardly any African-Americans getting elected to any positions because the right to vote had been had been uh, impaired to that point. But the reason that this case relates to race is because uh, ultimately the butchers lost their case in the Supreme Court. It was a five to four decision in favor of Louisiana. The majority held that the 14th Amendment Privileges and Immunities Clause does not protect fundamental rights such as the right. Uh, to practice an avocation. And so 
Justice Miller wrote for the majority, he said the 14th Amendment's purpose was to secure freedom for the newly freed African-Americans. That's not his term, of course. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, not to expand the rights of the state against the state for, for white people. And he also said that the Privileges Immunities Clause only affects rights expressly acknowledged, acknowledged in the Bill of Rights. That there's no there's no other privileges and immunities that are protected. And the majority also drew a line, again, the state versus federal power and authority and said that the state under the 14th Amendment is prohibited from uh, from violating the privileges and immunities of U.S. citizenship. But the 14th Amendment does not protect, pr- prohibit a state from violating a privilege and immunity of state citizenship. So they kept in place this distinction between state citizenship and U.S. citizenship. That was really a big philosophical issue coming out of the during the Reconstruction. Yeah, and I was about to say that you know the Civil War has ended, and now it's been a few years uh, at this time that it's been ended. But there is this underlying idea of states' rights that um, you know there are things that the state has the right to do. Um, and it's honestly, you know, it is a bit surprising that this isn't directly about uh, about race, but it is a kind of states' right argument that will affect the doctrine of separate versus equal, that will be on the path, the road to Plessy versus Ferguson. So, you know, when... It, you go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say it is a key first step because... Uh, People who would be advocating for uh, fuller rights for the former enslaved uh, African-Americans would certainly be relying upon this concept of privileges and immunities to protect those rights. So one of those, obviously, would be the right to uh, to uh, work for pay, which is something that African-Americans would have to do under under the uh, under as free men. You know, the ability to apply a trade of your choosing. Well, so much for that under the slaughterhouse cases, because that's exactly the issue that is raised here in this case. So there were four dissents uh, in the case, and the dissents all fall along the same kind of line, which is that there really isn't a distinction or should not be any more a distinction between state citizenship and national citizenship, and that due process and privileges and immunities are. Uh, rights that all citizens have, uh, and these rights could not be abridged by state legislation. So the the centers are looking for a much broader uh, protection against state infringement of of what would be generally referred to as you know uh, fundamental rights. And it's interesting too that Plessy versus Ferguson is a spoiler is going to be a nearly unanimous decision. At this point, we do have more debate within the Supreme Court. So I want to keep that in the back of our minds. So to transition then, ultimately, what's the result, what's the practical result of the slaughterhouse cases? And then what do we transition to next um, on the road to Plessy? Well, the the practical effect of the slaughterhouse cases, cases is that the idea that there are privileges and immunities that the federal government will protect against state infringement goes out the window. And that's um, it's noted by the dissent. Uh, they, they say that the 14th Amendment has been rendered a vain and idle amendment as a result of the slaughterhouse cases, at least as far as the privileges and immunities clause clauses go. Um, the majority just says that the rights of U.S. citizenship are very few and there's and they're limited to those that are written in the Bill of Rights. The ironic thing about that is the Ninth Amendment is a is an amendment that says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage any right that is not that is retained by the people. So even the Bill of Rights itself acknowledges that there are fundamental rights other than the ones listed in the Bill of Rights. And that's in that's in the Ninth Amendment. And, you know, before um, actually before we jump forward in time, before we start moving into the 1880s and 1890s, I'm curious, I haven't thought about this before, but for, I don't know, about 10, 15 years, so the Civil War through the 1870s, it was pretty much all Republicans in charge of the federal government. Do you know why there were still, I guess, these conservative um, 
justices or justices who were open to overturning um, this legislation because it, it it seems like you would want you would have Republicans or like Republican appointed justices on the court that would want to defend the use of the 14th Amendment. You would, but there, but as I mentioned, I think there is this tension, but I mean, it wasn't just universally accepted that the rights of state and U.S. citizenship are the same and that your rights do not depend upon the state where you reside is not something that was just automatically adopted by everyone. And so there were still by some people, even Republicans, even maybe some radical Republicans, this idea that there still is a distinction between U.S. citizenship and a citizenship of a particular state. Mm, so uh, we don't we don't really see that today. We 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 kind of accept that today uh, in terms of what we would call civil rights being national in scope and not dependent upon being a resident of uh, Texas versus South Carolina versus New York or whatever. But in eight, in, even after the Civil War, I don't think this was an idea that was just instantly and automatically adopted. So there was still some philosophical, and I'm not really sure that that the uh, that this case, for example, was decided with an idea of undercutting the ability to protect African Americans. That's a good point. That yeah, I mean, first of all, we don't know what cases are necessarily going to be the most important years down the line. We don't know all the repercussions even today, even in 2020. Right. Um, but. But I would say before we move from the slaughterhouse cases that there's a um, he's deceased now, a scholar named Edwin Samuel Corwin. And he made an interesting observation about the slaughterhouse cases. He said, and this is a quote, unique among constitutional provisions, the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment enjoys the distinction of having been rendered a practical nullity by a single decision of the Supreme Court delivered five years after the provisions ratification. And even today, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment is a, is a dead letter. It's never been revived. Wow. So yeah. what, I was going to ask this a little bit later on, but so what does that mean for today? Well, there is a bit of a debate about that. I think clearly Justice Thomas on the court today, and um, I think there's some decisions in which Justice Gorsuch has joined Justice Thomas arguing for a revival of the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Their reasoning and rationale for doing this is open to debate, um, but Justice Thomas and, and maybe Justice Gorsuch, depending on where he is exactly on this issue, are the only two justices that I'm aware of since the slaughterhouse cases that have made that argument. And it is a, it is a, it was a full on, uh, clean kill of the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th amendment this slaughterhouse cases was it just it just died and never was revived but so slaughterhouse case go ahead so i know you've you've kind of hinted around this or spoke about it already but what would that mean if um thomas if justice thomas or justice gorsuch got their way um theoretically what could that mean for law in the united states in a very hypothetical question it's totally hypothetical because you'd have to find out, well, what exactly would be the majority of the court's view of what are the privileges and immunities clause? I mean, the privileges and immunities of United States citizenship. We don't have not developed that area of law to the point where we can say conclusively what it would mean. We also don't know what it would mean if that became the prevailing opinion of the court, what it would mean for what we traditionally see as due process and equal protection arguments. Because there's actually three parts to the 14th Amendment, due process, equal protection, and privileges and immunities. And because the privileges and immunities has been a dead letter for so long and really was never an active part of American jurisprudence, the, that, that clause of the 14th Amendment, it's kind of an open question as to what it would mean in, in, today's, in today's life. So it's kind of one of those pieces of text in the Constitution that is sitting there in plain sight, but it's it's a nebulous tool. Um, yeah. Yeah, the way it works for Justice Thomas, and I don't have any specific examples, but he will sometimes concur or dissent, and he will say that his concurrence or his dissent is not based upon the rationale of the majority, uh, but he would uh, 
make this decision based upon his application of his understanding of the privileges and immunities clause. Oh, wow. Is kind of how it works. So he will, he, you will find cases where the majority might decide a case based upon the application of due process or equal uh, protection or the first amendment or whatever. And he would concur, but do so applying the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th amendment. So that's how he operates it. And if somebody really wanted to go in and study his, uh, privileges and immunities decisions, you can get some probably flavor of, of what he believes the scope of that that section is. Gotcha. Yeah. No, and, and I didn't know that about Thomas. That's really that, that that's something that's really new to me. Um, but speaking of uh, less hypothetical, of more grounded in, in reality of the law. So we have these slaughterhouse cases um, which create a, a whole separate constitutional question um, about what privileges and immunities could ever mean um for for u.s jurisprudence but going forward on our road to plessy versus ferguson what are the next cases how do they develop in 1875 congress passed the civil rights act of 1875 and this is a uh, bill that prohibits racial discrimination and ends uh, public accommodations public conveyances public transportation places of amusement and so forth these, case, these uh, were challenged in what are called now the civil rights cases. They went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decided in 1883 that the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was unconstitutional. And so that bill, that bill was struck down. Uh, the uh, 13th and 14th Amendment, the court says, does not empower Congress to outlaw racial discrimination by private individuals. So this creates what's called the state action doctrine, that the 14th Amendment and the 13th Amendment only apply against state action and not individual conduct. So the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1875 was held to be an unconstitutional regulation of private conduct in 1883. And this this was a major piece of civil rights legislation that came right on the heels of Plessy. Again, Plessy, I'm not sure at that time, had really been seen in racial terms or what it meant for race relations or, or racial related legislation. Uh, by 1875. But uh, the, the case also um, indicated that private interference, private interference in voting jury service, appearing as a witness in a case, all were also beyond Congress's uh, reach or control. Now, the obvious implication of this case is states now don't have to affirmatively restrict the rights of anybody because you have these extra jurisdictional, extra legal entities like the Klan and other types of associations that are private that can interfere, intimidate, and so forth against voting and the whole range of civil rights. And that's private conduct beyond the reach of Congress. And if the states decide not to restrict or prohibit Klan activity or other types of activities in their, in their state, you know, that's, again, seen as the state's business. And how did that happen? You know, because... We we were talking about Congress's intent and about reconstruction, um, the goals of legislatures and uh, the legislators, and there's the amendments that pass that these are in the Constitution, and there's also clearly legislation that Congress wants to, um, you know, pass and protect people who are threatened by the Klan or by state governments. So how does the Supreme Court go from this technical ideological debate in Slaughterhouse to striking down civil rights legislation? Well, in this case, they're they're looking, they're just very narrowly interpreting the authority of Congress as it relates to regulating conduct by private actors in the state. And one of the things that happened between 1875, when this bill passed, and 1883, when the Cape Court made this decision, was the election of 1876, where Rutherford B. Hayes was elected on a vote, I believe, of the House of Representatives in a race uh, against Samuel Tilden. The election of Hayes, the Republican, was by and large a compromise between Republicans and Democrats in Washington whereby Democrats would allow Rutherford B. Hayes to become president in exchange for removal of federal authority in the states. And it was that agreement that essentially ended the Reconstruction era, because once the federal authorities were no longer 
in the states, in the rebelling states, uh, able to uh, protect in any way the rights of former slaves or African-Americans now, 10 years after the Civil War, 11 years, um, the states were given pretty much free reign at that point to render African-Americans second-class citizens. The Civil Rights Act of 1875, which predates by one year that election, was an effort to to offer that protection. But the uh, court, after the election, uh, made this decision. It was seven to one. The only dissent was by Justice John Marshall Harlan, who served on the court for 34 years and is known as the great dissenter because of his dissents in so many of these uh, critical cases. He was a Kentucky native and a former slaveholder. So where you're from or what your pre-Civil War past was does not necessarily dictate how you voted in some of these cases. But this was a sweeping decision, a, a, a horrible loss for the advocates of civil rights because the response in the South to this particular decision was the beginning of Jim Crow laws and race codes. And the case effectively ended any effort, any of the Republicans' efforts to guarantee civil rights for African-Americans through congressional action because this case was a total bar against that type of activity. And of course, uh, the states in the South or any state really that uh, was seeking to deny African-Americans their civil rights could easily do so simply by turning a blind eye to any entity, any private entity that that, uh, that used force or intimidation to uh, essentially accomplish that goal. And so for this, um, for these cases, it comes back to the idea you're just talking about, about politics and Supreme Court, about politics and the courts. Um, and I forget the exact quote, but there is this kind of idea that the Supreme Court isn't a political body, but it keeps its ears or eyes on where the country is heading. That, that it, it, it does see what's going on. Um, so it, it sounds to me like, you know, the court is both, slashing down civil rights legislation and also sensing where the country is going, which is in a terrible direction for, you know, Jim Crow segregation in the South, but that it's moving in tandem with some of these trends as well. Um, I'm curious about what this means for basically the 20th century and beyond, you know, um, what, what happens to these precedents? Well, the civil rights cases is still good law. The idea of the state action doctrine is as vital and vibrant today as it was when it was created in 1883. For example, in 2000, the United States affirmed this principle in a case called United States versus Morrison. This is a case that held Congress's that Congress did not have authority to enact parts of the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was joined by O'Connor, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas in a five to four decision, affirming the central holding of the Civil Rights Act, uh, civil rights cases that the 14th Amendment did not allow uh, Congress to regulate private discrimination. So the this case is is alive and well uh, today in terms of, uh, of uh, the 14th Amendment, and it's called the state action doctrine. And, you know, I mean, I, I understand the idea that precedent tends to stay, um, but it's not especially a good look when the precedent is, um, you know, terrorizing African-Americans, denying them the right to vote, or letting their rights be denied, I guess, whatever way you want to go about saying that, and then also striking down um, or nullifying parts of the Violence Against Women Act. So are there efforts that you know of to try and overturn this precedent or... Um, kind of make it a moot point? I don't think the state action doctrine is at any risk of being set aside. That's just my opinion on it. I, I just don't think that's... How else is it used? I'm just curious besides... Because th these are pretty... Um, these would seem to be like unpopular uh, rulings. So I'm just curious what other instances you know of that it's used in. Well, I think any time a person brings a claim on uh, under the 14th Amendment, they have to allege that there's a state actor involved. I think that where you might see this come up is there's currently a debate over 
the so-called censorship in, in social media. There's people that say, well, social media is censoring me because I'm conservative or social media is censoring because I'm liberal or they're censoring me because I'm uh, uh, saying things that aren't objectively true or they're censoring me because I'm advocating violence or whatever the, the argument of the day is. So to the extent that somebody may choose to sue, let's say, Twitter or uh, Instagram or whatever under the 14th Amendment for violating their due process of law or civil rights, they will, under the state action doctrine, state action doctrine lose because Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are all private entities. They're not state actors. So that's where, you know, you kind of run into a bit of a of, of an issue. There is an argument that if the 14th Amendment was applied to private individuals, uh, that it would create uh, a mass of legislation because people can discriminate in ways that happen, you know, all the time. Uh, I will say that one way that the court did get around the state action doctrine to a degree was the case where in the 40s, a case that the court held that, you know, Restrictions and deeds against sales to African-Americans were held unconstitutional. They held not that the private action of the seller, including the term in the deed when he sold to the buyer, that was not held to be unconstitutional or something that the court could predict. The state action was the enforcement of the restriction by the state courts. So the so that so now when you see uh, deed restrictions in old deeds that prohibit sale to African-Americans or people of the Jewish faith or whatever it might be. Those are those restrictions are not unconstitutional, but if you went to enforce them in court, the court would not enforce the restriction under the state action doctrine, because that court enforcing the action is, is would be considered the state actions violative of the Fourth Amendment. Interesting. So it's interesting too that we're kind of talking about from this from these cases, there is legal documentation. There are words on paper um, that are ch- that their meaning is uh, maybe not changed, but um, their their meaning has been, let's say. I don't know, would you say nullified or altered by the precedents from this case that the words exist, but they aren't necessarily used? Well, in fairness, uh, uh, you know, the 14th Amendment doesn't say expressly that it applies against private action. So it, it, it's just the way the court interpreted it at that time. I think there are probably historians that have looked into the private records and private papers of the judges of that time that may have a better understanding of the reasoning why these, the, for example, the civil rights cases in 1883 was decided so restrictively. I don't really know that, um, you know, when I draw the line from the eighth election of 1876 and that kind of compromise that led to the elect, the choice, I guess, in the absence of a clear victory of Rutherford B. Hayes that there's a line from there to the way this case was decided. I'm just pointing that out as a matter of historical fact. Um, But what was in the mind of the judges, the justices that made the decision that I don't know that, that I certainly don't know. And I don't know that any historian has done that work. That's a lot of legwork. (laughs) Yeah. You could fill books with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so then speaking of, of what you could probably fill books with um, the Plessy versus Ferguson case, um, is a big one. And that's kind of, that's the road we've been on. Um, right. So let's break down what was Plessy, um, you know, what happened there first of all, and then why was that so important? Why is that such a infamous case today? Well, the, the uh, after the civil rights cases in 1883, the states, partic- particularly in the South, but throughout the country, perhaps to some degree or another, began to write all of these Jim Crow laws that essentially created the the category of second-class citizenship for African-Americans. And one of those laws was a Louisiana law that required railroads to provide separate but equal accommodations on rail cars for white and colored, as they call it then, colored races. 
So the law also barred persons from occupying rail cars other than as assigned to them by race. So it would be a violation of the law for an African-American to be in the portion of the car that's designed, that's designated for white passengers. So um, a guy by the name of Homer Adolph Plessy, who uh, by his own account was one eighth black, agreed to be the test case uh, for an association that included uh, civil rights advocates and uh, railroad companies who found that this was not a particularly efficient way to run a railroad. And so they, uh, uh, Plessy went into the white car and he was arrested and one thing led to another, he was convicted. The case went to the Supreme Court. So this then became one of the major test cases of these Jim Crow laws that were affirmatively now state action, affirmatively creating separate uh, facilities, separate schools, separate the whole bit, separating the, um, the races at the time. So this case also gets decided seven to one in favor of the Louisiana law. Justice Brown wrote the majority opinion, and in the majority opinion, he created what's called the separate but equal doctrine, that the 14th Amendment did not require states to integrate or to have the same rights for African-Americans as white uh, citizens, but said that the... uh, that said those legal those legal distinctions are not unconstitutional as long as they have equal facilities they can be separate but they have to be equal so that you have the separate but equal so separate schools but equal of course the problem was nothing was equal as well so um uh he uh he uh created this doctrine and the only dissent again was justice harlan uh the great dissenter as he as he was known and he uh was uh, actually very famous for this dissent because his dissent became the cornerstone for Brown versus Board of Education, which was the case that overturned Plessy. And uh, Plessy was already kind of dying on the vine with some of the earlier cases, but it was Brown versus Board in 1954 that overturned uh, Plessy. And so I'm curious, and this I know this kind of goes into... Um you know, non-turn of the century history, but it relates. So I'm going to ask um, in terms of overturning uh, a case like this, a precedent like this, how does that happen? How, um, you know, how did civil rights lawyers, activists go about undoing Plessy? Well, you could do an entire series of, of, uh, of podcasts or shows on what was really a strategy primarily attributed to uh, later Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was a lead attorney for the NAACP for so many years in so many of these cases. But he took a very incremental approach where his his view was that if, to attack the, the Plessy versus Ferguson and these Jim Crow laws, you had to do it in a very strategic, incremental way, piece by piece. You had to start tearing apart the foundations of these laws. So you go back to the 30s and late 20s with cases that were incrementally uh, attacking uh, Jim Crow and, and separate but equal that culminated with Brown versus Board uh, to a point where there's not much left to to the doctrine. I, but I, I, I do. Think that's you go ahead. That, I was going to say that's one way that it happens, but sometimes cases are just flat out overturned. Sometimes they're flat out overturned because a five to four decision from five years ago now has a five to four majority of the way. So they just vote vote differently when they get a chance to to overturn it. Sometimes cases are what's called limited to their facts so that it's the way for the court to say, we're not really saying we made a mistake in that earlier case, but we're limiting that decision to those particular facts. So there's different ways that courts can, can, uh, can limit or undermine or even uh, expressly overturn a previous decision. And of course, that gives lawyers different uh, strategies to how they attack precedent that is not in their favor. And I, I do think it is a, it is exceptional. Um, some of these Supreme Court cases we're talking about from the turn of the century, from the late 1800s, um, are still applicable today. But Plessy versus Ferguson is not that it was particularly targeted um, because you know, what what happened there? Practically, what did that case mean um, going into the 20th century? Well, that case, uh, not, you know, the civil rights 
Act case, the civil rights cases from 1883 was uh, harmful to African-Americans because it restricted the scope of the 14th Amendment significantly so that only a affirmative state actor could be held responsible. That gave a lot of free reign to extra legal entities like the Klan and so forth to do the dirty work of of, uh, intimidating African-Americans. But the Plessy decision, there was already pretty much a de facto separate but equal being established throughout the the South and in parts of the country, certainly as it relates to schools. Uh, But the the Plessy versus Ferguson case enshrined that as, as lawful. And that was the distinction because up until this point, there was still some hope that there would be some relief at some point that the Reconstruction Amendments would be uh, activated in a way that gave African-Americans some access to uh, general civil rights in the country. And Plessy versus Ferguson was the final nail in the coffin to that. And, and so the Jim Crow laws that had been established after 1883 or even before uh, were given full effect. And uh, the South was given uh, a license then to create a case system, a caste system, where African-Americans were relegated to second-class citizenship. And <laughs> I was listening so deeply, I forgot <laughs> for a second. Um, well, I was going to say yeah. also on the on Justice Harlan's dissent, he created the notion of the colorblind constitution. He affirmatively referred to the constitution as colorblind. He was uh, against this decision because obviously the Louisiana law is anything but colorblind. And so that's where you get the idea of the colorblind constitution is from Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, you were pointing out several times before the great dissenter, um, Justice Harland, you know, this is a, a good period, too, for finding, um, you know, passionate dissents, passionate um, quotes to pull out from people that are trying to stop this seeming tide towards Plessy, the, the, the road towards separate but equal. And so something to wrap up on is thinking more broadly about this time period, um, as opposed to the eight or nine justices on the Supreme Court, you know, do you have any sense of how people viewed the Supreme Court at this time? Was this big news or was this more technical jargon that happened to enforce or, um, you know, uh, legalize what was already going on in the country? Well, I've I've read the uh, reports that say that after the civil rights cases in 1883, there were protests in some of the cities uh, against the decision. There was there was the abolition movement from before and during the Civil War morphed in a sense into a civil rights movement. Uh, And so there was always a pro civil rights movement in the country. And there were always African-American organizations that were working to give African-American citizens access to the full American experience and the full range of of rights that white citizens always enjoyed, or at least white male citizens always enjoyed on things like voting. So uh, that was always happening. And there was really never a period of time where that movement was totally uh, dead. Even after Plessy, there continued to be civil rights, uh, civil rights organizations all across the country that worked toward toward advancing the cause of civil rights for African-Americans. They just were, were, would be dealt these defeats. And it was a very dark period from, from really Plessy versus Ferguson until probably the World War II. You had a whole period in the first three decades, I'd say, of the, of the 20th century where lynchings were on the rise. African-Americans were really up against the wall in terms of having any rights that, that people would, rec- that, the, that the body politic would recognize. But you still had civil rights, you still had W.E.B. Dubois, and you still had, you know, all of these uh, 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 individuals that were active in, in anything they could do to, to make things better for, for African-Americans. That's well said, and that's also a good transition um, for what I hope are other podcasts that are after the turn of the century, and, you know, hopefully podcasts that also are about some of the better news in history that we than what we've been able to talk about. But I think this is uh, incredibly valuable, very interesting. And it's also, I really appreciate you talking about how some of these precedents are still on 
um, the books today, how these cases still matter today. Is there anything else um, that you think is is important to mention about these cases or, or why they matter today? You know, I think I think it's just, you know, when when uh, when we first started talking about doing this and really linking everything from the, re, you know, reconstruction amendments through the the three main cases of the 20 some odd year period. It really is a linear story about how you start with the promise of the reconstruction amendments and end with the really tough case to take uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy today is widely regarded as one of the worst decisions in the Supreme Court history, along with Dred Scott, uh, which was the decision right before the Civil War and probably in the 20th century, I'd say the Korematsu case, which was the case that allowed for internment of Japanese-American citizens during World War II. And then the Bug versus Bell was another case that's widely regarded as really bad. That's the case that upheld forced sterilization of purpose, a statute that provided for forced sterilization of people with mental intellectual disabilities. So there have been some really bad decisions. Plessy is probably regarded as one of the two or three worst decisions in the, in the, in the court's history. And like I say, that case was, for all intents and purposes, overturned with Brown versus Board of Education. But um, but yeah, some of these the state action doctrine is alive and well. Uh, you know, I can see both sides of that, and you know, you can always have arguments about whether it's too restrictive or not restrictive enough. But uh, yeah, these cases can have really long legs. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's good to think about, um, which is what you were kind of I think hinting at before. Um, it's good to think about the fact that history stays with us, yes, and you know, legislation stays with us, but whether something. Um, whether one case is still good law or one or another case, the law or precedent's been overturned, it still matters. It still, you know, affects um, the world that either our parents lived in or that we live in today. So we're going to wrap it up there. But thank you, Craig, so much for talking. Um, if people enjoyed listening to this, where else can they find your voice? Well, I have a podcast that doesn't ever talk about the Supreme Court. It's called Hooks and Runs. It's a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. But we do talk about whatever we feel like talking about. It comes out weekly on Tuesdays. And you can find us at hooksandruns.com or anywhere that you might listen to podcasts. I'm just curious, before I totally let you go, did you ever, we talking about baseball, did you ever talk about the, um, the free agent decision, the uh, Kurt Floyd on your podcast? We talk about free agency. We we have not talked about that. We began the podcast in March of uh, 2020. And during the season, we talk about uh, what's happening during the season. So that would be the kind of thing we might talk about in the off season. Gotcha. Um, so we'll see what comes up in, in the next few few weeks okay. while we're in the off season. <laughs> Needless to say, we, we have great timing. We started the podcast in, 20, in March of 2020, right as the spring training was being shut down and right as the music industry, at least the live, because we wanted to talk about concerts that we went to. So we haven't been to a concert since March of 2020 because there haven't been any. So you're getting really good at being creative. <laughs> you're having to be creative, exactly. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Judge. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Judge Craig Estobaum, uh, also podcaster of Hooks and Runs, and it's been really great talking. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. 